and he's been part of our family for a long time. Uh, they've done work all over the world, and right now they are in Little Rock, Arkansas, as the senior pastor at Agape Church. Garrett and Shaney were just uh, were just there visiting, so they got to see them out there. Now they get to come to our habitat and hang out with us. You know, we had to twist his arm to get him to come to California. <laughs> we picked him up at the airport yesterday, and the first thing they did was step outside and said, this weather is amazing. So be blessed that you live where you do. You guys, please give your attention and your support and your love tonight, Pastor Scott Stewart. Would you please welcome him? Can you say praise the Lord? We're going to have a good time tonight. Thank you for that agreement. We'll have a good time tonight. Amen. You can feel the love tonight in the house. It's always good. Uh, I brought with me my lovely wife, my best friend, Loretta, is with me this evening. Yeah, I'm so sweet. Uh, uh, but it's a, pre- a pleasure to be here with you. Um, for those of you who do not know me, I've been, a, been uh, ministering in this church for, wow, probably 25 years, I guess it's been now. Um, my wife and I have been missionaries for more than half of my life, has been overseas, and um, Four and a half years ago, the Lord brought us uh, back to the place where we left from, which was Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, um, there was a man who was pastoring a church there. Actually, they, they gave me a quick call and asked me to come in because they knew that I was supposed to take over the church. So a man by the name of Happy Caldwell stepped down from the, the church, and I stepped into the pastor and have been there now for the past four and a half years. Uh, and um, just like every place God has sent us, God has us on a special mission. You're on a special mission, too. Wherever it is you're at, whatever God has you doing, uh, you're on a special mission. Each and every one of us has a plan and a purpose. And every time God has sent us to a different country, he has altered or or shifted uh, not so much the exact purpose, but the plan on how to get things things done. When I lived in Scotland, I used to wear a kilt. Maybe some of you guys, you guys remember me wearing a kilt here at church before? Yeah, I got good legs, don't I? Yeah, so... uh, I do that every once in a while just to kind of get the, get the crowd going. Okay, so uh, not tonight. Uh, but the, the, the way I want to teach this, I'm going to teach this, this is this Wednesday and next Wednesday, so it's a mini-series. And I'm calling this series, this two-week series, I'm calling it Blueprint. Even everything concerning the, the gifts of the Spirit and, the, and the, the Word of Faith and so forth. But at the same time, I'm also a person who looks at results. And when you look at results compared to the way the results were in the past, you realize there's a disconnect somewhere. Because it seems like those who had much less than us seem to do a lot better than we have done. Those who had much less seem to excel where we seem to fail. I just feel the love in the room. I feel a big, nice hug in the room tonight. I'm hitting you with this in the beginning because I want to set us up because we really need to uh, before we can really get to the, the, the core of some issues, we have to really kind of, kind of open this thing up and be honest with ourselves and look at it and say, you know what? What I read in the Bible, I I'm not necessarily seeing experientially in my life. What we're reading in the Word, we don't always see happening in the church world as a whole. Instead of people dying for their faith, we see people compromising every place they can just to get more people to come to their church. Can I get an amen from somebody? That's what happens. So why is it that in the past people refused to compromise to the point of giving their life to where today people seem to compromise on every front just because they want to build a bigger building, get a bigger church, do something a little bit different, be more popular, have everybody like you? What, what, what's happened in this period of time that's changed? 
the character, the nature, the power, the presence of who the body of Messiah is actually supposed to be in the earth. Let's go to a couple of scriptures and kind of lay out the, uh, what I'm calling this first point is just called effectiveness. And we're going to look here in Acts chapter number 17, Acts 17, and we're going to uh, look at verse number six. I want to look at the effectiveness of our ancestors, the effectiveness of the people who wrote the Bible, who lived the Bible. All right, Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse six, it says this. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brethren of the rulers uh, of the city, crying, those that have turned the world upside down have also come here. Those that have turned the world upside down have also come here. I'll say that one more time. Those that have turned the world upside down have also come here. These people turned the world. Thank you, sister, for that week. Hallelujah. The, the people, these guys turn the world upside down. And what we find ourselves doing today in many ways is we're just trying to just barely just kind of nudge a neighborhood. And these guys are turning the world upside down. How did they do that? Was it because they had a better gospel than we have? Is it because they had more Holy Ghost than we have? Or did they have more righteousness than we have? They had more sanctification than we have. Were they more saved than we are? No. So then what's the difference between them and us? They turn the world upside down. And we're just trying to push a neighborhood a couple of inches in one direction. Let's look at another verse of scripture. Looking at effectiveness. Acts chapter number 19 verse 10. The apostle Paul here has been in Asia. He's got a Bible school of 12 guys plus himself. That means 13, if I do my math correctly. 13 plus, or 12 plus 1. 13 guys. Look what it says here in verse number 10. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all those that dwelt in Asia. Can you say all? All those that dwelt in Asia. Now, Asia's a big place. Much larger than this place. Many of you might not know this, but the United States of America... For us, it seems like a pretty decent-sized country. Would you agree? We are 4% of the world's population. That means 96% of the planet lives outside of our borders. Yet, 94% of all the preachers in the world live here. I'll say that again. We are 4% of the population, and we have 94% of the, of the ministers in the world ministering to 4% of the population. That means there's 6% of the ministers left to minister to 96% of the world's population. Can you see we have a long way to go before we get this job done? Then how did they turn the world upside down with a handful of people? How, how did they turn the world upside down with a handful and yet we have... Only 4% of the world is here, and yet we have so many of the ministers, and we are not seeing this thing really taking hold in the way that we know God wants us to. We know the Holy Ghost wants it to happen. We know God, how many know God wants revival more than we want revival? Then if he wants it more than we do, then why don't we see it? There's a big difference between what God wants and what is actualized. How many of the Bible says this? If you're born of the Spirit, then you should also walk in the Spirit or live by the Spirit. In other words, just because you're born of the Spirit does not mean you're going to live by the Spirit. Just because you are righteous in Christ does not mean you live righteously. 
Just because you are sanctified does not mean you live a sanctified life. Just because you are legally what God has made you does not mean that you vitally walk out what God has made you to be. There's a big difference between the legal side and the vital side of your redemption. The legal side is you have been made all things. You've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. The vital side is walking out everything that pertains to life and godliness in your life. And there's a big difference. There's a chasm in between those two things. These men found a way to bridge the legal and the vital and they're able to walk it out and they changed the world. All of Asia heard the word. What does it say? All of Asia heard the word, uh, word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Let me read it again. And they continued for two years so that all in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How many years did it take them? Two years. I'll say that again. Two years. Can everybody say two? Two years. All of Asia hears the word in two years. And how many do they have? 13 people to start with. How did they do that? It was probably because of their great uh, social media platform they had going for them. None. Well, then it must have been their, their wonderful television broadcast that went all over the place. None. Or maybe it was their wonderful radio show that they had. Oh, none. Or maybe it was their new jet that flew them one place to the next. Uh, no. Maybe it was their great Facebook page or their website or their great publishing company. Nobody had a Bible. Nobody had a Bible. Nobody could do morning devotionals before they went off to work. I mean, there were no churches. They were starting, but there was no church buildings. I mean, there was no Christian bookstores, no Christian radio stations. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? They had nothing in comparison to what we have, yet their effectiveness seems to be so much greater than what we have experienced. So there must be something disconnected somewhere. I mean, because for myself, one thing I like to do is I like to look at what the word says, look at what we're doing now, find out the difference, subtract the former from the latter, and then try to figure out what we're not doing so we can start doing it and then start living the way we were, most, we were meant to be living. And if we can do that, then we can once again turn our world upside down. And we can once again have all of Asia, or how about this, all of America hear the word of the Lord in merely two years. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to wrap this thing up and go home. But no one is more ready to end this than the Lord. He is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. He's desiring more than anything that everybody gets born again. He's waiting for a move of his spirit to sweep through and to change us. So how do we get from where we're at to where we need to be? Well, the thing we need to do is go back and look at what they did. And if we do what they did, then maybe we can in some way get what they had. So we ask ourselves those questions. Were they more saved than us? No. Were they more filled with the Holy Ghost than us? No. Did they have more Bible than us? No, they had less. All they had was the Old Testament. They didn't even have the New Testament. Did they, did they have... More sanctification? No. More redemption? No. They didn't have anything more than we had. So what, what were our few things that they did have that we seem to lack today? I'm only going to try to focus on one of these over these next two weeks. 
One of them, and I know that your pastors talked about this before, but I'll go ahead and mention it now, is one thing is they looked at the Bible differently than what we do. Now, of course, as I just said, they didn't even have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. However, they were able, as the scripture says in Acts chapter 19, they were able to preach, able to convince people mightily from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Let me say that again. They didn't have the New Testament, yet they could convince people mightily that Jesus was the Messiah through the scriptures. Ask yourself this personal question. Can you show Jesus mightily through the scriptures if all you have was the Old Testament? You know what we have today? We have people today telling us, you don't even need the Old Testament anymore. As for the Ten Commandments, rip it off your walls. You're freed from the Old Covenant. You have nothing to do with that anymore. Do you know what? The people who wrote this book never would have made statements like that. You know a phrase you never heard spoken by any apostle or any first century church pastor? He never said this. Turn to the book of Ephesians. They had no book of Ephesians. Let's open to the book of Matthew. They had no book of Matthew. So where did they preach from? They preached from the only scriptures they had, which was the Old Covenant or the Old, Old Testament scriptures. Yet they could preach from that and get the results they had. Maybe a part of our issue has been we've cut off our nose to spite our faith. We've cut off face. We've, that was a, we've cut off our nose to spite our faith. That's true too. We've cut off our nose to spite our face. We, we've removed from ourselves a huge source of faith that they embrace. Not only did they embrace what they had, but they were writing that which they were going to give to us. And they put the two things together and it was an explosion that changed the world. Has anybody ever read Romans chapter, or Hebrews chapter 11 before? All the great heroes of faith? You will notice there's not one New Testament person mentioned there. You'll notice nobody in that chapter is born again. Nobody had the Holy Ghost. Nobody had the King James Bible. <laughs> Yet, they subdued nations by faith and shut the mouths of lions by faith and received promises by faith and raised the dead by faith. And what we've done is we've come along and said, you know what, you don't need any more of that. That's, that's called Old Covenant. We get rid of that. And that always, that, that's a phrase that always bothers me. Mark will tell you, testify to that. Because when people say things like that, you don't need, we're not under the old covenant. Have you ever heard that before? We're not under the old covenant anymore? Have you ever heard that before? Let me ask yourself this, ask yourself this question the next time someone says that to you. What old covenant are we not under? Let's just ask a few questions. What do you mean by that? I'm not under the old covenant. What does that actually mean? Let's just pause for a moment. Um, is, the, is the covenant of Noah, the Noahic covenant, is it still working? Yeah? How many know that's an old covenant? That's older than Moses' covenant, older than David's covenant. That's an old covenant. So the, Mo the Noadic covenant is still working today. So when you say I'm not under the old covenant, you can't be meaning that one. Yet it's an old one. One of the oldest one. So that's still going. Are we still under the Davidic covenant? You better hope so because the Bible says God made a covenant with David that someone from his descendants would sit upon the throne forever. So if Jesus is going to sit on the throne, David's covenant still got to be in effect. So the Davidic covenant still got to be going on. How about the Abrahamic covenant? Is that still around? That's an old covenant. What are you talking about? 
Well, you're not under the old covenant. Really? Help me. What are we talking about here? Well, if the Noahic is still going and the Davidic is still going, the Abrahamic is still going, the Adamic is still going, what, what are we talking about? There is something going on in our world today that is beginning to systematically remove us from the faith of our fathers. It is a, a perversion of the word of God and many of the sayings of the original apostles to get us to remove ourselves from a source element, a place of faith that we need to live the way our ancestors lived. You say, well, what they're talking about is they're talking about the Mosaic Covenant. And that's what people will say, the Mosaic Covenant. And the problem with that is this. Have you ever heard people do this before? They'll say, well, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. The blessing, of, we're, we have the blessing of Abraham. So now let's go ahead and read our blessings. I'll take you to Deuteronomy 28. The problem with that is Deuteronomy 28 is the Mosaic Covenant. But everybody wants the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. But if you don't believe in the Mosaic Covenant, they don't belong to you. The problem with the Mosaic Covenant and saying it's no longer around is simply this. You know how many times the word forever is mentioned in the Mosaic Covenant? I don't. I forgot. I actually had it in my head. I forgot what it was. I think it's like, I think it's like, it's either 26 or 50, something like that. It's, 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 a, good, it's, a, good, it's a good amount. I had it in my head and I just, I just, it just slipped me. Nothing has stopped. See, what happens with covenants, and I've mentioned this here before, I believe, covenants don't disappear. They layer on top of each other. They intensify. So, this as an example, when, when Abraham's covenant, covenant came along, Abraham came along after Noah. When Abraham's covenant came along, did it displace Noah's covenant because it was the new one in town? No. It layered on top of Noah and strengthened Noah. Then, as the different covenants came along, what they did was they didn't displace each other. They strengthened each other. Did the new covenant displace the Davidic covenant? No. Did the new covenant displace the Abrahamic or the Noahic or the Adamic? No. And it didn't displace the Mosaic either. Nobody believed in antiquity what is believed today. And there's a big problem with that. And that's not even my point for these next two, two days. But, but I needed just to introduce this to you because I want you to be aware of this. I want you to listen because you're going to hear people saying things on television and on radio. It's going to try to get you to distance yourself as much as you can from anything that is Old Covenant, anything that is Old Testament, anything that had to do with the past. And there are people now even saying, I saw it myself. I'm watching a major convention in America. There's a guy on, I was watching just recently, and he said this. This is no joke. He, walked, he, was, he was preaching, and he was putting up on one screen. Oh, hi, Scott. He put up on one screen. I didn't know I was up there. Put on one screen, words of Jesus. On another screen, the words of Paul made them look like they were in opposition to each other. And he said, they said, who are you going to follow? Jesus, Jesus is before the cross. Paul's after. And then, they, and then he said, you better watch out for those, some of those words you read in red. What? People are telling us that we have to watch out for the words of Jesus? Yeah. If I, if I told you the person who said this, you'd probably drop your draw to the floor if you don't know already. There is a, an attack against what our ancestors believed, what they brought over, and what they gave us. There are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. There are four, over 400 quotes and references from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. There are 22 verses in each chapter, or, 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 on, on average. But when you, when you divide the 400 into the 22 in the chapters, you get about 17 verses per chapter in the book of Revelation are all quotes or citations or references back to the Old Testament. 
Yeah, somehow we're supposed to believe that we can't have anything to do with that anymore? How do you like this one? This happened just a few months ago. The devil is not trying to get you to sin anymore. That might be news to some of you. But apparently, uh, it's, it's true in a lot of modern-day theological circles. The devil's not trying to get you to sin anymore. And he went on to say, all the devil's trying to do is to get you to keep the law. Really. And the law was spec- is specified as being, and particularly, the Ten Commandments. So let's just look at this for a minute. So the devil's just trying to get me to keep the law. The devil's trying to get me to not murder people anymore. The devil's trying to get me to only have one God, and that be Yahweh. The devil's trying to get me to be faithful to my wife and, and not steal. Th- Does that make any sense to anybody? No, because you're using your brain and you're thinking things through. There has been a complete looneyville taken over in a lot, of, a lot of areas within the body of Messiah today. And we are now putting ourselves in opposition to the men who wrote the book, the men who preached the book, the men who actually lived the book. So that is one difference between us and the ancients. And I think it is one of the power weaknesses that we have in our faith. That's not, that's it. This, is, this is not the main thing I want to focus in on, but it is something that's major. I think I, wanted, I did want to point that out. Let me quickly look at one verse just to kind of underscore what I was saying, and then we'll move on into the next part of, um, of my teaching. Uh, so let's, let's look here then at... Um, And that was, um, did I not write that down? Loretta, did I not write that down? I don't think I wrote that down. Mark, can you help me out with that? Be led by the Spirit and just tell me where I was supposed to be going with this thing. You're gonna, you'll go to John 5 next? What does it say in John 5? That's it. That's the verse I was looking for. Man, it's that by the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, Jesus actually said this. He said, if, if they would not believe Moses' writings, how will they believe my words? What was the verse on that? Genesis John 5. If they will not believe what Moses wrote, how will they believe my words? And this is what people are doing now. They're saying, well, you can't take anything that's written in the Old Testament, can't take anything that's written in the Old Covenant, rip those Ten Commandments off your walls, and oh, by the way, now you've got to be careful about what you're reading in red. Oh, you've got to be careful because Jesus was just an Old Testament man, and everything he said before the cross is not applicable to you because you're a believer. So all you need to do is follow what happened after the resurrection. The only problem with that is this, is after the resurrection, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he got his disciples together and he said, hey, everybody, this is what I want you to do. Go into all the world, and I want you to teach everybody whatsoever things I have taught you. So he points it back to what he taught. And here's the deal. We don't have a lot of teaching happening today about what Jesus taught. We are a lot of teaching. Someone might say, Jesus, this is what Jesus said. But most of our teaching is focused on what Paul and Peter and Timothy and the rest of them. But what about the what Jesus actually taught, because really the great commission to make disciples, he said, teach people what I taught. And so maybe that's another part of the reason why we've seen such a lackluster performance is because not only do we not teach what he taught, we now don't even believe what, he, now we don't even believe what he said is relevant because he's just an Old Testament man. This is gaining strength and it's gaining a lot of 
vibrancy in the body of Messiah, and we need to be aware of that. And believe me, there are a lot of people out there who are trying to get you to believe they know how to speak Hebrew and Greek when they teach you this stuff, and they don't. Mark said amen, so that's true. And you can tell, if you know, how to, if you know, if you know either language, you can tell when they pronounce words, they don't know what they're talking about. Okay, so effectiveness. We looked here at effectiveness. So what I'm saying here is the angels were very, very effective at doing what they told us we were supposed to go and do. So we're not being as effective as what they are. Is there some things that we're falling short on? Well, as I said, all the, all the legal stuff is there. Salvation, righteousness, Holy Ghost, sanctification, all these things, they're there, they're in place. It's the same on both sides. The vital side is different. It's not being carried out in part, partly because of the way we treat the Word of God, which is where we get our faith, which is where we cause things to happen, which is where we honor God. But there's also something else that I want to grab a hold of here. And I want us to see it's, it's uh, going to be found here. Let's go to, um, now that we're here, let's go to the book of Galatians in chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Not only, Galatians 2, we'll read verse 7 through 9. Not only have we, have we kind of disregarded the scriptures they used to build everything that we have, but additionally, they held a hold of something that we have allowed to be broken. And this thing that we've allowed to be broken is called, from my, my words here, it's called uh, the Judaic root of our faith. How many know our faith is called the Judeo-Christian faith? It's called Judeo-Christian because your faith is Judaic or your faith is Jewish. Christianity does not exist without Judaism. You've got to have that. That's the root of everything that we believe. It's where, it's where we grew from. How many understand that Jesus was a Jew? Right? So, and how many, the, I know, how many know that Jesus actually said, salvation is of the Jews. So everything about what we have, salvation, all that we have is intrinsically tethered to a Judaic root. Our ancestors knew this. They knew it was important. They knew it was, and it was so important to them that it permeated every aspect of their ministry life. They brought it into their theology. They brought it into all their, all their, all their teachings. They brought it into the way that they approached people and places. It permeated them. Today, unfortunately, we find very little trace of that. Think about what everything in your, in your faith life, everything that, that happened importantly in Christendom happened according to God's calendar. For example, Jesus died at the Feast of Passover. I mean, if I was talking to you and I said, I said um, and you said, so what holidays are you and your family going to celebrate this year? And I said, well, we're going to celebrate uh, Christmas and we're going to celebrate uh, uh, Easter and we're going to celebrate um, New Year's. You would know that I was more than likely I was a, a Christian, Right? But if someone said, if you ask somebody and they said, well, we're going to celebrate Passover and we're going to celebrate Pentecost uh, and, uh, and Hanukkah, you would probably say they're what? Jewish. And if, but if someone said, oh, we're going to celebrate Ramadan and we're going to celebrate, you'd think they're what? So see, the kind of holidays kind of give you away. They kind of give you away is about to, to where you're connected to or what you come from. Everything about our faith is Jewish. Jesus was, he died at Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread, raised on the Feast of First Fruits, sent the Holy Ghost at the Feast of Pentecost. Every major thing that has happened in your life cycle 
The life cycle of, of Christianity has happened on a major Jewish feast. Day. Actually, they're called the Feast of the Lord, Leviticus 23. They're not, they're not called Jewish feasts. The Feast of the Lord have happened on a major feast of the Jews. So let's ask yourself the question. If that's the way God started things, if it was important enough for God to do these things on this day, then is there a reason why we don't continue to see them or observe them or to celebrate them today? I mean, why would, we, why would it be different now than what it has been in the past? People say, well, that, that, was, just, that was just for a time, and now, it's, now after Jesus' death on the cross, now it's all changed. It seems to me that after he died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, the first thing he did was tell told his disciples, now I want you all to go to Jerusalem because we're going to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And what did he do from heaven? The first, what did Jesus do in heaven is he sent the Holy Ghost on the Jewish day of Pentecost. And he didn't do it. Think about this. He sent them there and he didn't say, he said there, he said, now go there and wait for the promise. So they get there. They know they got to wait for this promise. They get there and guess what? Nothing happens. And they wait the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Nothing's happening until 10 days pass. What's Jesus waiting on? Well, God's got a calendar set. And the Feast of Pentecost is not yet fully come. But he's in heaven. Right. Heaven is turning on a calendar that God set before there was a heaven and before there was an earth. He set all these things in place. So the first thing Jesus does is the new church is going to be birthed when on the feast of Pentecost. So the Jewish feast of Pentecost, if I can call it that, that's when the church was born. So our very existence was birthed at the Jewish feast called, called Shavuot or Pentecost. You know what happens today? Pentecost comes and goes, and the church doesn't even know that festival has even come. We don't talk about it. We don't celebrate it. We don't mention it even happened. Yet that's the day that God chose, I'm going to birth my church into the earth on the calendar of God, on this particular feast. I'm going to wait in heaven, pour my power out, celebrating this day. It's the first camp meeting, the first original birthing of the church. And what happens is the church blows past it in our day without a whisper of even mentioning that it's even here. Why would that be? How did we get from, it's so important to God that this is going to happen on this day to us today where it happens and no one even knows that it happens or that it passes by as a date? It's because that Judaic tethering has disconnected. And when you disconnect us from our root and then you disconnect us from the ancient scriptures, we float and we become something that would have been very foreign. Very foreign indeed to the ones who wrote this book and who lived these lives that we read. And I don't know about you, but I, I'm happy to read the lives of other people. But at the end of the day, I don't want to just read about their lives. I want to live some of it too. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Here we're going to find, we're going to focus on the Apostle Paul over the next, this week and next week. We're going to look here and we're going to see how that he was given a commission. And you guys all probably know this. But it says here in, in verse number seven, it says, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision had been committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was to Peter, for he who had worked effectively the apostleship to the circumcision also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Kephas, Kephas is actually Peter, that's the Hebrew name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given unto me and gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcision. So when we say things like this, 
Peter was the apostle to the who? The Jews. And, and Paul was the apostle to the, the Gentiles. And that's where we get this from. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So what we should see then in his life, his life should focus. How many would agree Paul was effective at what he was doing with the Gentiles? So he, we should see his life focused on reaching the Gentile world, the Gentile people. And you and I, I would think most of us in this room, are, are of Gentile origin. We are, we are predominantly here because of a revival that started in the Word of God for the Gentile people. So aren't you glad for God giving that commission to Paul? But it didn't start with Paul. It started with Peter. Peter's the one who led the first Gentile to the Lord. Now, Peter basically is handing the mantle off to Paul to go to the Gentiles because Peter was doing double duty. Paul was, Peter was ministering both to the Jews and the Gentiles. Let's go to this first example and see when this first Gentile was brought into the, uh, the kingdom. And you will know him because he was um, named Cornelius. And um, he, was, uh, he obviously was a part of a band. It was called the Italian Band. He was... Uh, that was a bad joke. Okay, let's move on really quickly. Acts chapter 10, verse 9 through 16. It says, the next day as they went on their journey, they drew near. Now, Peter has just healed Tabitha, raised her up from the dead. Miracles have happened. And Peter went into the house. He was staying, he was staying in the house of a man named Simon the Tanner in a place called Joppa. Right now we're at Joppa just uh, this, past, uh, this past November. It's on the sea. He was staying with the tanner. And just a little side note, a little funny thing. He was on top of the house. And there are people who say the reason he was on top of the house is because, because of the fact that Simon was a tanner. And uh, if you don't know what that means, tanner is people who tanned hides. And the way they used to tan hides in biblical times is they did it by collecting dog feces. And, uh, and so isn't that the place you put the visiting preacher? You put him in the house with a guy who collects dog manure. And, uh, and he retreats to the top of the house because it doesn't smell up there and the wind's blowing in from the sea. But anyway, he's up there and, um, and he has a vision. You know this vision. You've all heard this before, I'm sure. And Peter went on top of the house, top to pray. It was about the sixth hour. Why does it tell us that? Because there were certain prescribed times within Judaism where they would pray. Get this. Peter is the leading apostle of the quote-unquote Christian faith and he's still praying according to the prayer times established by his faith. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. And while he, they made ready, he fell into a trance and he saw heaven open. And an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and, let down, and was let down to earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, no, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Pay attention to these words here. I've never eaten anything that was common or unclean. Now, what that tells us is this, is that the entire time that he lived with Jesus, they never ate anything unclean. And here he is now. And actually, the best historians will tell us that what's happening here in Acts chapter 10 is approximately a decade after Pentecost. So a full decade after Pentecost, Peter is still living a thoroughly Hebrew, kosher lifestyle. Yet he is the leading apostle of this newfound faith that is yet to be called Christianity. It's not called Christianity yet. You know, that doesn't happen until it leaves Israel and goes into the first Greek-speaking place up in Antioch. So think about it. 
if it became something known as Christianity, what was it before? Because whatever it was before is what it was originally. Can I get a groan from somebody in the house? See, we're Christians, but if, if it became something known as Christianity at a certain point in time, then that means from that point backwards, it was something else. Or maybe it was the same thing, just called something else. And it was. And we'll talk about that possibly a little bit uh, as we get into uh, next week. But pay attention to these words, common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done how many times? Three times. It was done three different times. And the object was taken up into heaven. Now what happens at this point is most people begin from this point and they teach, see, God has changed the food laws. Okay? Now that's, I'm not teaching on food law, but I'm just saying that's what people get out of this. He's changed the food law. So there's, God doesn't call anything common or unclean. Eat whatever you want to eat. Maybe some of you have heard that before. That has absolutely nothing, nothing to do with this story. That has been the traditional interpretation of this for a long time. People pull out of this. Okay, see what God did? He changed all of this. To the point, to the point that still happens even to this day. That when Jewish people get born again in some Christian churches, you know what they do to uh, make sure that they've made full conversion? Is they give them a ham sandwich. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's absolutely hard to believe that they would do something like that. A particular uh, church not too long ago, the, a Jewish guy got born again in a service. Everybody's celebrating as they should. They took him out to eat dinner or lunch afterwards, and they ordered him a big plate of ham and said, now you get to be one of us. I'm not mistaken. I think it's we get to be a part of them. I think we're grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. I think we're the, no longer the strangers and foreigners. I think now we've been made a part of the covenants and promises. Because somebody get, amen, you know what I'm talking about? We, we have to begin to think a little bit differently here. So, so if that's not the way that you're supposed to look at this, how do you look at it? We're about to find out. Continuing Acts chapter 10 and verse number 28, it says this. I'm sorry, uh, no, verse number 17. And while Peter wondered within himself what this, this vision, which, uh, I'm sorry, and while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, which he had seen, meant, behold, men, I'm sorry, behold, behold, the men who were sent from Cornelius made inquiry for Simon's house and stood at the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought on the vision, everybody say he thought on the vision. And while he thought on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men, how many men? How many times did he see the vision? Are seeking you. Arise, go down with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. He sees the vision three times. Now three Gentiles show up at his door, and God says, Go with them. And what happens then, of course, he goes to the house of Cornelius, the Italian, verse 28. And then he said unto them, you know how unlawful, now let me just make mention that this is not unlawful with the Bible. It's unlawful in rabbinic Jewish law of the time. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It, when, and that's, sometimes people get confused. It's just rabbinic stuff of the day. It does not relate to the scripture. Unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company or to go with another person of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call 
any man, here we go, common or unclean. Those are the same words he used in the vision. Common or, or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for and asked for what reason have you sent for me. So this becomes the first time where a Gentile is born again. This Gentile is born again through the Jewish evangelist or the Jewish apostle who comes along and leads him into faith. At this point, shortly thereafter, what happens is Peter becomes the one who hands off, if you, if you will, the baton over to, um, to Paul, who then lead the charge in the way that Cornelius was ministered to. This is important because it contextualizes where we're going to go with this. It brings us, the Gentiles, into this family of faith. And now that we're in it, we're going to follow. And remember, at this time, Cornelius is brought into this faith, which is not called Christianity. It's not Christianity. So what is it? You, the guy who leads you to the Lord is fully a Jewish man who keeps kosher and keeps the feast and celebrates the Sabbath. He knows nothing. He knows nothing of this thing that we call Thanksgiving or Easter. He knows nothing of any of this. And he leads Cornelius to the Lord. What do you think he's going to teach Cornelius? What he knows. And he doesn't know Matthew's writing a book. He doesn't know Paul's writing a book. He teaches him everything he knows. So this faith is still firmly tethered to this Judaic root. And we see this then dominates and permeates the life of the Apostle Paul after this. I'm going to go through just a couple of these as we're uh, approaching 8 o'clock here. Actually, it's 8.01, but I'm two hours behind you in Arkansas times. It's just 6 o'clock. We haven't even started yet. All right. Actually, there's my quote right there, John 5, 46 and 47. I found it. It's further down. All right. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. Now, you know what happened, I believe, is that the Apostle Paul is born again uh, in Acts chapter 9. Uh, and, um, well, he's born again prior to that, but in Acts chapter 9, um, he, is, he is discovered. And in Acts chapter 13, Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. And they're in Antioch. And I remember they have been now sent. They are now commissioned to go to uh, the Gentiles. Look what it says here in verse number four. So being sent out by the Holy Ghost, this is Barnabas and Paul. So being sent out by the Holy Ghost, they went to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salmas, they preached the word of God in what? Where? In the synagogue. Now, if you, have, if you are the apostle to the Gentiles, why are you going to the synagogue? This is an important question. If we're looking at the blueprint of how Paul was able to be successful in being able to reach people and to change the world and to move the agenda of God forward. We need to look at everything that he did and we're going to find an overriding, an overriding characteristic of what he does is in, in the midst of seeking the Gentiles, in the midst of seeking you and me, one thing Paul never loses sight of is Abraham. He never loses sight of Judah. He never loses sight of the Judaic root. If you have been commissioned by God, anointed by the Holy Ghost for the Gentiles, then why would you be spending your time going to the synagogue? It would be similar to this. If the Lord spoke to Pastor Mike and said, I have called you to, is this called Lake, uh, what is this area called? Lake Forest? 
Foothill Ranch. God says, I have called you to Foothill Ranch, period. And he spent all of his time, not all, but most of his time in L.A. reaching out to people. Would you kind of go, what are you doing? Would you question that? If God has divinely spoken, Foothill Ranch, this is where you're supposed to be. He spends a lot of his time ministering over in L.A. That's what's happening here. You are the apostle to the Gentiles. There are Gentiles everywhere. You're not in Israel anymore. You're now over in Cyprus. You're not in Israel, yet you're going to the Jews in the synagogue. Why are you doing that, Paul? He's got to have a reason. He's not doing things by happenstance. He's following the leading of the Holy Ghost. Let's look at Let's jump on down to Acts chapter, and we're in 13. We're in 13. Let's go to Acts chapter 14. When they departed from Pergia, they came to Antioch and Pisidia. And this again, this is not in Israel. This is not a Jewish colony. It's not a Jewish province. And what does he do? What does he do? The Bible says, and he went where? To the synagogue. On what day? On the Sabbath day. And of course, you read the story, and what happens is they call to him, he stands up and he begins to preach, and people get saved. Hello, Paul. Maybe you missed the memo. You got the right hand of fellowship. You know what's happening here. You're in a Gentile place full of Gentiles. How many Gentiles did Paul have to walk past to get to the synagogue to preach to the Jews who he's not called to, nor does he have an anointing to minister to? How many Gentiles did he have to walk past before he got to that place? What is in his heart? What's happening to the apostle Paul? What is he doing? What foundation is he laying that's going to bring about this great outpouring of God throughout the Gentile world? Something significant is being done in the life and the ministry of Paul. Not only did he honor the tradition, not only did he honor the scriptures of the, of the saints of the past, but he never allowed himself to detach from the Judaic root. I want to ask you a question just for you to ponder in your heart. And, and I want to ask you, are you connected to that? You say, Pastor, I'm really not sure what you mean when you say Judaic root. Are you, are you connected in your heart to the nation of Israel or to the Jewish people? Are you connected to this idea that we have something in common between us? Or do you see us as two completely in separate, different faiths and separate religions? Are, are we two diametrically opposed groups of people? Or are we actually the same family, one living in a different revelation than the other? Ask you just to kind of ponder that in your heart and, and ask yourself that question. You see, when, when we lose that focus, for example, on the word of God and that Judaic tethering, we have a tendency of floating out here. And like I said, you disconnect and untether and you kind of float and become almost anything you want to be. At last count, at last count, there was 40,000 different Christian denominations in the world. 40,000. How can there be 40,000 different groups of people who are supposed to believe the same thing? Maybe it's because what holds us down, what tethers us, what grounds us, we have detached from. If we could reattach and retether, we'd find ourselves all being pulled back to a central point of unity and focus. Instead, we float with 40,000 different perspectives on what the scripture says. I don't know about you, but I do not believe that two plus two can mean four for me, five for you, seven for you, 12 for you, and whatever you want it to mean. But unfortunately, that's the way much of this is sold to the body of Messiah. It's whatever you want it to be. It's a smorgasbord. Pick and choose whatever you want. And we create such division 
Listen, I, I believe this. What happens in the church happens in the world. You know, Jesus said, he said this. I mean, if you look at our country right now, we're a very divided place. And Jesus said some very profound words. And that's this. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It can't. Those are the words of Jesus. Much more division cannot be found than what we have in our nation right now. But maybe it's a reflection of the fact that we have 40,000 different divisions, even in the body of Christ. And what could solve that? We agree on some very simple principles. The word of God is absolute. And God's word stands forever. What God has promised, God will keep his promise. Well, God made that promise to the Jewish people, but now Jesus came, so he doesn't keep that promise anymore. Now he gets a new promise to us. And now all of a sudden the Bible can mean whatever you want it to mean. We can't accept that anymore. When God makes a promise, that's it. Settled. Done. When God grounds and tethers us, we hold to that place. If we can find ourselves back in a place that the ancients understood, that they held a hold of, we would find ourselves agreeing a lot more than we're disagreeing and find 40,000 denominations fades away very, very quickly. Quickly, let's go here to, just do a couple more here. Acts chapter 14. What time am I supposed to get out of here? Um, I didn't even ask you, Chip. What? Are you sure? How long does Pastor Mike go on Wednesday nights? 8.15. Thank you, Pastor Mike. All right. Acts chapter 14. So he was in Pergia. He goes to the synagogue. Look at what happens here in Acts chapter 14. Next chapter over, 14 and verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they were together. Where were they together at? In the synagogue. Is Iconium a part of Israel? No, it's a Gentile world. What's Paul continually going to the same place for? Because he's understanding if you want to reach the Gentiles, you cannot forget about Abraham. If you want to make an impact for the Gentiles, you cannot neglect Abraham. You've got to make sure they are going to be tethered. They're going to be connected to the root that keeps them strong. Also, this is very pragmatic. It's a very pragmatic thing as well. How so? There are no Bibles, as I said. No Bibles. If there are no Bibles, and even the, even the, the Jewish people, the, the scrolls were predominantly kept in the, in the synagogue. However, there were a group of people in the synagogue who had all the Bible committed to memory. I know, I know, I know for us, if we get 10 verses committed to memory, we're hooping and hollering and someone's sticking a pin on us, right? Well, in the ancient times, when you were a little boy, when you hit your bar mitzvah age, you had to have the first five books of the Bible committed to memory. That's pretty good. It didn't matter whether you were a fisherman, a carpenter. When you hit your bar mitzvah age, you had the first five books of the Bible committed to memory. If you were a rabbi, you had the entire Bible memorized. Think about that. The entire Bible memorized. So one thing was pragmatic about this, and it was obviously the Holy Ghost thing. But if Paul got a Jewish person born again, a rabbi born again, which he did all the time, then guess what? This new Gentile church has just found their pastor. You know, you can't turn a tree-worshiping rock kisser, I'm assuming, you know, a pagan, into a pastor in three months. You can't. But you get a, a rabbi born again 
He's got the entire Bible committed to memory. He now becomes the pastor of this Gentile congregation. Every church Paul planted, he put in place a Jewish rabbi as a pastor of that local congregation. And what do you think he taught those people? What he knew. Just like the apostle Peter taught Antioch, uh, Antioch, taught Cornelius what he knew. You see, there was a tethering, a connection. Did you know in the first century, when we've discovered all these churches all around the world, primarily in the Middle Eastern area, up in Greece, Turkey, and places like that, but when they've uncovered these ancient churches of the first century period, so Jesus died in, in roughly 33, so all the way up until 99 A.D., the first century, by the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, all the churches we found, they were different sizes, they were different shapes, but they all had one thing in common. Amazing. Different countries. Geographically, hundreds, thousands of miles apart, yet they all had one common thing. And that is that when they looked at their foundation stones, they all had the same longitude and latitudinal direction. And guess where they're all pointing to? Jerusalem. Today, very rarely even crosses our mind. Back in the day when the people changed the world, when they turned it upside down, when they shook Asia in two years, they never... Remember that verse in, in Acts 19? If you remember what it says? It says this, And by the space of two years, all of Asia heard the word, both Jews and Greeks. You see, no, no matter where Paul went, he never forgot about Abraham. Now I'm going to quickly throw this one verse out here. This, one, this last verse is just to get your mind going and to make you think, what? And then we'll finish it. We'll pick it up next, uh, next week as we get to this. So that was in chapter 14. Acts chapter 15, I'm not going to read that, but Acts chapter 15, if you read that, it's all about how do we make the Gentiles a part of this Jewish thing called a church? Actually, it wasn't called a church, but they're like, all these Gentiles are being saved. How do we, how do we incorporate them into the Jewish faith? That's what Acts 15 is all about. Isn't it interesting? Today, if a Jewish person gets born again, we say, how are we going to connect this Jewish person into this Gentile thing called the church? But in the Bible, it was, how do we get the Gentiles hooked up with this Jewish thing, Hebrew thing, that God has created? It was a completely different way of looking at things. They certainly would not have given you a ham sandwich if that was the case. Look what it says here in Acts chapter 6. So that was Acts 15, Acts 16. Look what it says here, Acts 16, verse 1, verse number 1. Then they came to Darby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, and his father was a Greek. He was well spoken by of the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted to have him go with him. And he took him, and what did he do what? What did he do with him? He did what? He circumcised him. This from the same man who said, circumcision avails nothing. So then why, Paul, are you circumcising Timothy? Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Why would the man who wrote, if you're, remember what he said? He said, hey, if you're born one way, don't seek to be the other way. 
If you're uncircumcised, don't be, seek to be circumcised because circumcision profits nothing. And if you're circumcised, aren't you going to have to keep everything that the law says? Just remain as you are. Circumcision profits nothing, yet he takes Timothy and he circumcises him. Why would he do something like that? We'll answer that question next Wednesday when we come back together. And we'll continue to follow this Hebraic tethering, this Judaic tethering throughout the entire life of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and bring it to a nice little bow next week and hopefully put it in a place where we can take it and begin to use it in our own life. Amen? Did you learn something tonight? God bless you all. Pastor Chip. Praise God. Not often you get a cliffhanger at church, right? <laughs> so good. Scott, thank you so much. You guys appreciate that tonight. He will be back with us Sunday morning and Sunday night and next Wednesday. So make sure to, to come and join us for that. Would you do me a favor and grab a friend and bring them this Sunday? Right? People need to hear the word of God. Let's get them in church this Sunday, next sun, on Sunday night, and then next Wednesday as well. Don't forget we have a bunch of stuff going off. Uh, going on in the month of October as well from growth groups where you can sign up online on your phones and also the women's retreat. Uh, there's a table in the back and information online as well. We love you guys. Thank you again, Pastor Scott. Uh, we will see you on Sunday. Have a great week, guys.